This is The Professor's Corner, a McGuire Woods series exploring business and legal issues prevalent in today's private equity industry. Tune in with McGuire Woods partner Jeff Cockrell as he and specialists share real-world insight to help enhance your knowledge. Thank you for joining another episode of The Corner Series. Uh, I'm your host, Jeff Cockrell, a partner at McGuire Woods. Uh, here at The Corner Series, we bring together deal makers, thought leaders, investors, all surrounding investing and owning companies in the healthcare space. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by my good friend, uh, Wix Moffitt. He's a principal at Healthcare Compliance Network, and they do kind of consulting in the context of transaction support and also ongoing port co-compliance. Uh, Wix, if you could take a minute to introduce yourself and uh, Healthcare Compliance Network before we jump into a few questions, that would be fantastic. Uh, that'd be great. And first of all, Jeff, thank you very much for having me. So Healthcare Compliance Network, we've been at it for a little over 20 years, and we're a healthcare technology and compliance company. We assess, build, implement, and maintain compliance programs. Sort of from the very top, we can be a full-blown outsourced compliance resource or we can do sort of more like little almost SWAT team type projects, like maybe just a coding and chart audit, maybe just some help with due diligence, maybe some site visits of offices to see that their OSHA and HIPAA are under control. 80% of our clients are medical practices. We work with some other healthcare organizations as well, but right now that's certainly the space over the last 20 years that we've uh, focused on the most. The uh, topic of the relationship of legal compliance that you do versus the work that we as attorneys do is a topic of discussion often in the context of a transaction. Um, and I think of it as kind of a Venn diagram that there are some areas that are clearly in uh, the lawyer's domain. There are some areas that are clearly in your domain. And then there's an important intersection where they overlap. But that intersection and the overlap itself is important. But maybe I'll, I'll lead off the discussion of the relationship of our world and your world by kind of giving you the part of the Venn diagram that uh, probably doesn't overlap as much. And for me, I think of that as we are looking at, in the context of a transaction, we're looking at structures that can have very material uh, regulatory import, whether that's corporate practice structures or, or similar sorts of things. Uh, we're looking legal arrangements that can have either kind of structural implications or kind of fraud and abuse implications, whether that's kind of anti-kickback, stark uh, sort of things, but all embedded within kind of legal arrangements. Uh, we look at licensure, which can be important and tie as well to another area that we're looking at is kind of process and change of ownership sequences and, and things relating to that. Those are all kind of in our domain. <laughs> Wix, maybe give a little explanation of kind of what's in your domain, and then we can talk about the middle. Sure. So understandable that you bring that up. And interestingly enough, we got probably half or more of our referrals from law firms that we work hand in hand with. Uh, the other half uh, comes from private equity and investment bank sponsors and, and things like that. And also word of mouth. But back to your question, where does legal, how do we work together with legal First of all, almost all the stuff that we do is under attorney-client privilege with a Covell letter or something like that. They may call it a different document in different parts of the country, but, but that's where we go in. So we're, in a simple 
way to put it. We're kind of the worker bees and you guys are the queen bee and we report everything back to you. A real good example on that is to just talk about a coding and chart audit. So we do that under the attorney-client privilege. We'll look at everything. We'll get back to you guys where you maybe have some outliers or have certain liabilities. And we may also get back to you and say, hey, you know what? They're missing some revenue opportunities here. If they just do things compliantly, they might be able to increase their margins here. So that's kind of what what we go in looking at in those types of projects. And with regards to, I would say the, the main thing is when someone's in trouble that they still may need us, but lawyers are very good at figuring out how to maneuver that and, and how to put up their best defense. We're, especially on the portfolio compliance manage. I think we're very good at keeping people out of trouble because if you have an active, vibrant compliance program, it will prevent compliance issues for happening, from happening for sure. But what a lot of people don't realize is it picks up problems when, when they happen. So you'll really, you'll know when a problem happens. And, and that's what the, whether it's a commercial payer or CMS or anybody like that, they want to see that you have a program in place to pick up the fact that, yeah, we had a breach or, geez, we've been coding that incorrectly for the last six months. We should disclose it. And that's, again, where the attorneys would come in and help us disclose it properly and uh, make sure that they're doing it proactively uh, as opposed to just reactively. So that's a couple of examples of, of how we would work together. Sure. Another way of thinking about it is that is kind of from the perspective of the paper trail. If there are contracts and agreements or structures that I can draw out and look at, those are things that I can assess and test for, uh, whether that's tax, regulatory compliance, any number of things. If the question is focused more on what are they doing that is not necessarily connected to a paper trail that I can look at, that's where your work uh, starts to really come to the fore. And billing and coding is a good example of it in that the underlying uh, compliance of the activity, we may have a view on where that activity falls on a risk spectrum. But what we're not cleanly able to do is test to figure out what in, in the world they're actually doing. And that's where your role really comes to the forefront whether that is looking at uh, kind of operational details that uh, uh, that you're able to dig into or discussions with management, we can play a role in as well. But kind of ferreting out what they're actually doing is harder for us to do as lawyers. Yeah. So when we're working with our clients, we're typically doing at least some type of quarterly activity. And when new groups come on, we make sure that they're integrated properly. And by the way, at that point, if we, we might have to call you, Jeff, and say, hey, you know what? One got by the goalie here. Uh, we, we, need to, we need to figure something out. And then you get involved and say, well, I'm not sure we need to self-disclose on this. We can just fix it, put a corrective action in place, and move forward. Or we do need to self-disclose on this because we'd rather nip it in the bud now and just pay them back or whatever the ramifications are and let them know that 
it won't happen again and we put corrective actions in place. Another uh, element where kind of our world intersect in the context of a transaction, I think, is uh, when something has been identified as problematic. So it's kind of come onto our radar. We've done some assessment of where uh, that activity is on the kind of grayscale of risk, or maybe it's a, a point blank violation. The next part of that analysis that is a is a complicated but critically important aspect of navigating that issue in the context of a transaction is starting to put some boundaries on magnitude. We are not cleanly able to do, uh, but one that we would call on, on you to do pretty regularly. How do you see kind of that process in the context of a transaction? So from the magnitude perspective, uh, when we're looking at a practice and we see a lot of the, uh, let's say, for example, we see a lot of issues over the last few years uh, with regards to referrals or modifiers or medical necessity, whatever it is, and we can come back to you and say, hey, that could be a $10 million problem or could be a $2 million problem or whatever it is. So we can get you that information to help you make a more informed, better decision because post-acquisition, if that comes back to bite you, you know, somebody wasn't doing their job. Yeah, in the context of a uh, transaction, if you can kind of put a fence around the dollars of exposure, uh, even if they're uh, large, uh, let's say it's a large stark violation number, there's mm -hmm. there may be mechanisms that we can deal with that in self-disclosure that may make it a an escrow of, uh, let's say, 10% of that number, since that's in the bandwidth of the likely resolution of a stark self-disclosure. But all of that analysis has to start with uh, first uh, some kind of legal analysis of the the activity and then kind of a, a math exercise, which can be a little slippery uh, to put real live numbers around it. Because even if the activity is dark, dark meaning more of a point blank violation, smaller dollar issues are always easier to deal with than bigger dollar issues. Um, yeah. Maybe uh, pivoting a little bit, uh, we, we work together in kind of the context of a transaction regularly, but you've alluded to it in some of your answers that the transaction is not kind of where the care needs to end and that some problems can either materialize during the integration or they can be self-created once something is kind of in our hands and on our watch. Uh, that's another area where uh, the law firm is probably less well-situated to catch those things because we're not being paid to be on kind of continual audit watch with our clients. So we can field questions as they come or we can see issues uh, when kind of our work connects to them. But kind of overall ongoing compliance is a little harder for us to keep a finger on. How would you kind of describe your kind of function in that context? Well, that's a very good question and a very important thing to look at because we go off the seven elements of compliance, which is kind of the, the holy grail for compliance. And what that does is there's a, a continuous um, audit and follow-up process based on the size of the group, maybe even based on specialty and based on time-lapsed audits, whether, again, it be a site visit or looking at, uh, you know, looking at very chart audits or, or billing patterns as they go along. So we partner 
with our clients in most cases where we tell them, hey, this is best practices going forward to make sure you stay in compliance. And then from there, because you don't need to be involved in all that minutia, from there, we report back to you. And hopefully we report back, hey, you know, everything's fine. And if they do get audited by an external entity, they're going to be in good shape. So we, we keep you posted along the way, but, you know, certainly not on a daily basis. We, we do it as you need it. One of the kind of terms we use on the diligence side of looking at a company is also a term that applies to kind of the port co going forward. And that is that we're trying to assess uh, whether or not there is a culture of compliance mm-hmm. at a target. Can you talk a little bit about what that means and what it looks like and what the opposite of it looks like? Uh, sure. Well, a culture of compliance is a little bit it's a good transition, what we just talked about. It's it's not, hey, we finished our compliance work. You slam your book shut and say, okay, you know, we'll look at this again next year. A culture of compliance is is continuity where you're doing it all the time. You have a compliance committee set up. You have all types of reporting structures in place and you move along. And then if there is a compliance issue, you all get together and you figure out how to solve it and hopefully uncover it before somebody else does. The importance of that, Jeff, is you would much rather, because of your culture of compliance, find a problem than have you know the, the, the feds or the commercial payers come in and start poking around and find these things because then you're in a much less defensible position. You really want to, for lack of better words, be policing yourself throughout all of this. We just did, I don't know if it's a sidetrack, but we just got brought in on a deal and they had about a year ago had started looking to purchase uh, an organization and they got about eight weeks into it and nobody ever asked them, hey, are you guys under any type of audit? And found out that they were under a, a CIA, a corporate integrity agreement, and they'd already spent probably hundreds of thousands of dollars on due diligence. It didn't slow the deal down. It just stopped it. So there's a lot of stuff you want to look at and questions you want to ask to make sure you have that culture of compliance in place. One of the ways the absence of a culture of compliance manifests itself uh, can be a little harder to visualize, but it kind of translates into real problems. And and that is as an organization gets bigger, when there's not a corporate uh, kind of culture of compliance, a lot of the choices that have regulatory implications are being made at levels uh, of the organization where the people making those uh, choices either don't have kind of the regulatory sophistication to be making those choices or they're operating in an environment that is more focused on business outcomes and willing to kind of uh, stretch uh, the compliance ideas a bit. How do you see that playing out in companies that you review? That seems to be a recurring theme when I encounter a problem later. The effects of not having a compliance program They can be very expensive and they can be very time consuming for, you know, the C-level people and the attorneys. And and so not having a compliance program, it used to be when we started in this business, you you could get away a little bit by saying, oh, you know, I I really didn't know that one or I didn't know we were supposed to be doing it. 
But now with all of these more sophisticated organizations with private equity involved, you know, all you can't say, I, I didn't know I was supposed to do that. So you're going to be looking at, if they come in and, and find stuff, you're going to be looking at, at treble damages and extrapolation of, of fines. So it can be very costly and it can really uh, slow down your progress of getting ready for your next deal, which is usually three, five, seven years down the road. So it's r really important. Yeah, the stakes keep getting higher and higher. I mean, it's one thing to make kind of choices where you're absorbing some regulatory risk. Uh, and even in like a smaller target, the relationship of risk to magnitude, uh, it may be moderate risk and higher magnitude for that target, but something that it's easier to wrap your head around absorbing as opposed to uh, a larger organization where the, that same calculus, you've got moderate risk and high magnitude, the possibility that that risk comes home to you uh, goes up dramatically, uh, both in the sense that you're a higher uh, level target for either uh, kind of the government looking at things or your higher risk of a, a key TM suit, or you're at 100% risk that someone is going to be looking at these exact things in the context of a sale event in the not distant future, and some accommodation is going to have to be made with respect to that risk. So the ability to just kind of skate on things uh, that might have been a closer call when you're small get harder and harder to tolerate as you get bigger. Yeah, they really do. And implementation or operationalizing your policies into procedures is where we see most places kind of falling short. That You know, they might have spent some money or, or put a compliance program up on the shelf, but now they're not doing anything. They're not making it site-specific to their organization. They're not going in and auditing it and testing it to make sure that it's, it's effective. And you brought up an interesting point, Jeff, you know, whether it's, it's the feds looking at it or your next round of due diligence, somebody's going to look at it at some point, especially now with private equity. I, I think everybody kind of knows that, that uh, veil of safety that they had of being able to say, well, I'm just an investor in this company. I have, we have no liability. That has gone. So people are really paying a lot more attention to it. And I think an Another thing that's happening is we all know the government is pretty broke and getting broker and Medicare is, is not doing great. So we're starting to see a lot more commercial audits and CMS audits out there. Right. It's like uh, uh, communities are raising revenue by issuing more speeding tickets. Uh, that's yeah. a little bit more intimidating when you're talking about AKS or uh, Stark uh, compliance, uh, those are a little bit more than speeding tickets. But yes, they uh, are. Definitely a, a heightened environment uh, is what we can expect for both necessity of compliance uh, and the likelihood of review at some level by somebody. Well, Wick, I appreciate you uh, joining. We'll probably uh, call it there. Uh, this has been super interesting. It's a, it's a topic that comes up on every deal, the relationship of kind of what, what I do with what you do. Uh, and we both serve important and uh, at, at points overlapping, but at points very different uh, functions in the context of both uh, the, a transaction and the ongoing compliance of a, of a port code going forward. But thanks again for joining us. This has been a ton of fun. Yeah, thank you very much, Jeff. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us on this installment of The Professor's Corner. To learn more about today's discussion, please email host Jeff Cockrell, 
at gcockrell at mcguirewoods.com. We look forward to hearing from you. This series was recorded and is being made available by McGuire Woods for informational purposes only. By accessing this series, you acknowledge that McGuire Woods makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this installment. The views, information, or opinions expressed are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily reflect those of McGuire Woods. This series should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice from a licensed professional attorney in your state, and should not be construed as an offer to make or consider any investment or course of action.